It is mercifully over. Now what? Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and here fresh from the 10-month legislative yeah. session to tell us exactly what happened, what passed, and what didn't, uh, to all of the play-by-play, all that. Jeremy Wallace, HoustonChronicle.com. How are you? Yeah, Willie had it right with, it's been rough and rocky traveling, but we're finally standing on our ground, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this uh, because I feel like we have a connection with our audience, and so I, I owe it to them to tell them how I'm feeling about this. You know how when you are running on adrenaline, well, there's something that is chaotic, like the last ten months of this legislative session, the nonstop, never-ending legislative session. You're running on adrenaline, and so you don't realize how tired you are, right? Because the the adrenaline kicks in, and you just go. Yeah. Based on based on that, uh, but the second the chaos stops, the adrenaline switches off, and then you collapse. You're kind of done. You're worn out. You can't take it anymore. Um, you realize just how tired you are, and there are a lot of people in Austin who are feeling that way right now. That they've it's just exhausted. Now, I say that, but it was sort of ironic. The day after the session was over, the very next morning, I woke up and I felt. Great. I didn't wake up super late or or really, really early either, but I felt great. Almost like a weight was off my chest, right? Not off my shoulders, but off my chest. Like it was easier to breathe because they're finally finished. And I'm saying all this because this is not the way state government is supposed to work in Texas. And I think, and we're going to talk about retirements here in a little while, about uh, lawmakers who are leaving. Uh, there are a lot of them who are probably going home now. They, they've made their way home to all the parts of the state, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, etc. And they're having a talk. If, if it's a man talking to his wife or vice versa, and their spouse is telling them something like this, this is not what you said this was going to be like, that you were going to be gone for 10 months. That's not the way legislative sessions are supposed to happen in Texas, right? It's supposed to be a five-month thing, and this is not partisan either. It's some of the same exact people, though, who have told me for my whole life that they should not be a full-time legislature who want them to continue and do a fourth special session right now, right? That I think when you see people like Kel Seliger, he's retiring for a spe some specific reasons. When you see Lyle Larson retiring for his reasons, Dan Huberty retiring for his reasons, um, there are going to be some others who retire who are not vested in the retirement system just yet. We've already seen one of those, at least. Uh, ben Lamont, I think, is not vested. I guarantee you part of that is because of what I just said, that the stress on their family, the stress on themselves personally, because it's a part-time thing. The, these are all people with other businesses, right? Yeah. These are attorneys. These are businessmen, et cetera. And this is one more thing. That they're having to do, they're being treated like they are full-time employees of the governor of Texas, Jeremy, and they're not. Yeah, and, and it is really odd for them to be here in Austin, Texas in October. I look mm -hmm. back through the history. It's like you have to go back to 1972, the last time the legislator was you know, meeting late into October to mm. debate whatever, right? You know, yeah. so 
1972. Come on now. It's like it, this is not supposed to happen. This is a crime against nature <laughs> or political <laughs> nature, whatever it would be. <laughs> yeah, no man's uh, liberty or property is safe while the legislature is in session. That was the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the old quote. Uh, so much wisdom there. Uh, so much news going on. Where should we start? Let's go with elections and redistricting and allocation of power. Let's start with this. Governor Abbott has chosen a new secretary of state. How long were they without a secretary of state? It was uh, quite some time. Um, the Senate did not confirm the last secretary of state, Ruth Hughes, the woman who said that the, la the Republican who said the last election was safe, smooth, and secure, right? It seemed like Republicans in the state Senate didn't want to hear that. Uh, they never said that that was the reason that she wasn't confirmed, but that was the speculation. Do you remember, you have to remember, that President Donald Trump, when he was still president, after he lost the election, was trying to overturn election results in other states. We, we, we covered this. Well, and, when um, was this? <laughs> yeah. Has he stopped? Is it still going on? Yes, I, think I the believe legal he's still continuing over, right? this as, as we speak. Are, are the legal challenges over, though? I'm yes. trying to remember. They got poured out everywhere, yeah. right? There were, there were so many cases all over the place where the courts just said, this has no merit. Well, one of the attorneys who was working on that, a guy named John Scott from Fort Worth, has now been chosen by Abbott to be the person who oversees elections in Texas. All right. That, just to give you a flavor of this, you remember the kind of claims that former President Trump's legal advisors, including former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, what kind of claims they were making? Listen to this. Philadelphia, unfortunately, and I can say this about my own city, has a reputation for voter fraud. You have a reputation for dead people voting, and we're going to go look at just how many dead people voted here. I didn't think we'd have to do that, but we will. Is Abbott doing this, Jeremy, because he refused to do what former President Trump actually asked him to do, which is go back and audit the entire 2020 election in Texas. And in the meantime, Abbott's done some other stuff. There's the audit of four counties, which doesn't even seem... Legit. We still haven't seen evidence that they're actually doing that. Now he's choosing this Trump loyalist, somebody who actually tried to, just like our attorney general, Ken Paxton, turn uh, election results on their heads in other states. Right. Is this just another Trump, uh, you know, trying, trying to placate him sort of thing? Well, it certainly feels like Greg Abbott once again saying to the Trump supporters, please love me. <laughs> I'm trying <laughs> yeah. to show you that I want your love and you I'm keep saying no. <laughs> you keep, you know, criticizing me, keep talking about this Ron DeSantis guy and I'm sick of it. <laughs> right. mm -hmm. um, it. It's it. We'll see what happens. I think one thing that is probably right about this and, and we have seen Lieutenant Governor Patrick and others, including the Texas Republican Party, push for another special session. Even after the 10 months of legislating that has gone on, there are a few more things that they want, including that audit of the 2020 election. They want to see increased penalties for illegal voting in Texas with the legislation that passed uh, in August actually reduced the penalties and took it down to a misdemeanor instead of a felony, right? Uh, and that's something that the House and Senate agreed to. Lieutenant Governor Patrick has been saying that the House slipped that in under the radar. We really didn't know it. No, that's not true at all. The Senate 
They knew about those changes, and they could have rejected the conference committee report, but they didn't. Our reporting is that as that was being passed, and we mentioned this here on the show previously, Lieutenant Governor Patrick called Trump to congratulate him on the elections bill that had been passed. They were all thrilled about it at the time, but now Trump wants them to do more on this stuff. So if there was another special session, this new Secretary of State would not be confirmed by the Senate. Now, here's the rule on it. The And I saw some people who maybe don't understand the law. The governor appoints the secretary of state. And from that moment, they are the secretary of state. But they're still subject to Senate confirmation. So it's not an interim secretary of state. Uh, if the Senate is in session, even in a special session, that confirmation kicks in, right? That, that confirmation requirement kicks in. And it's a two-thirds vote of the senators who are present. You remember that Abbott had now two previous secretaries of state who were not confirmed by the Texas Senate. And what happens when they're not confirmed? They have to go away. So I think Patrick would be under a lot of pressure to try to get this Trump guy confirmed, right? But he would never be able to because no Democrats are going to vote for that. It would be very contentious. Contentious like our redistricting process, Jeremy. And I know that you put in 16, 17, 18 hour days over the last two weeks covering all this. I was watching as well the floor debates and the hearings and on and on and on. And I got to give the Houston Chronicle some some special love on this one because you can see the result of certain media coverage. And when you have it on the front page of the hometown paper that two African-American lawmakers have been pitted against each other, in a map that's drawn by Republicans, this draws such a reaction. And I'm, I'm going to get you to talk about it in just a second to all these people who came to the Capitol to talk about this. Sheila Jackson Lee, longtime Democratic congresswoman from Houston, was basically here at the Texas Capitol to plead with lawmakers that they not do that. We're asking for, I am, for mercy for the people of this district. She argued it was wrong to break up a district that has been relatively unchanged for decades. You've decided to take out... Uh, the uh, downtown area, which, as I said, was formerly the residence of African-Americans, Texas Southern University and University of Houston. So I'm asking for those economic engines and the 18th Congressional District to be restored. And the congressman that she had been paired with was Representative Al Green. That it doesn't look right for the only two persons in the state of Texas to be running against each other in a congressional district from the same party to be of African ancestry. Let me fill in something about the uh, process here. So it's my understanding that the way this map came to be, it came into being, uh, was that the Republican delegation from Texas to Washington basically drew the map with their lawyers. They said, this is the one that we like. This is, this is, a, this is our preference. And they took it to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and the uh, senator who's the chair of redistricting, Joan Huffman, said, this is what we would at least like to start with. This is our baseline. Um, now, Huffman says that they drew this in a, quote, colorblind way. And that they didn't consider demographics in the original drawing of the map, but then they did test the map to make sure that it would survive uh, court challenges based on whether it was racially discriminatory. That's the way she talked about it. Um, but Jeremy, on this, 
it seemed, and you covered this a lot, you were tweeting and putting it in the newspaper, and we've talked about it here. On this, it seemed particularly mean-spirited. Um, and look, we get it. It's it's a blood sport. This is not for the squeamish. This is, this is one of the nastiest things that happens in politics is when the maps are redrawn. Um, and we've seen this for years where they'll literally just draw uh, a district and change it just a tiny bit to take somebody's house out of it because they don't want that person to be able to run uh, for that district. Now, in Congress, they do not have to live in the districts. So this is the only office that's, that, that's true uh, for state house and state senate and state board of education. They all have to actually live. There's a residency rule. They have to live there. Um, but with this, it seemed really mean-spirited and got such a reaction, Jeremy. Yeah. And like you said, you know, look, redistricting is the most cold blooded of all politics. You know, the, you know, for, you know, Texans who have been around for a while, you know, Nick Lampson and Lloyd Doggett are the two yeah. you want to kind of ref- reference back to in history. Mm-hmm. What they did to Nick Lampson's district <laughs> over and over again, they just stretched that thing all over the place until finally he couldn't win it. And yeah, with he Lloyd Doggett. I mean, What's that? To his credit, he kept, I was going to say on Lampson, to his credit, he kept finding ways yeah, to win. Absolutely. In fact, won that Tom DeLay seat at one point. Exactly. Years ago, which was really fascinating. That's back when uh, Democrats a little maybe had a little more fight in them than they do now. Yeah. I'll get some angry comments from listeners about that, but go ahead. Yeah, and then the Lloyd Doggett district. Remember, he was from Austin, Texas. You know, he had won the original 10th congressional district that was all within Travis County. But then they decided to redistrict and push him into a district that would stretch from Austin all the way to San Antonio. Uh, right. And then he ends up winning that seat, which was supposed to be drawn for San Antonio. So you've had an Austinite you know, representing the Alamo for the last you know decade or so. And so you can see like it can be a really cold blood sport. And with this redistricting, it certainly was to start with. You know, it's like you know, going back to what Al Green said, remember there's 36 members of Congress in, you know, mm-hmm. from Texas. Only two of them were put into the same district. And that's the two African-American ones, you know, mm-hmm. which really kind of jumps out at you right away. But then it, when you go beyond it, it was the hundreds of thousands of people who are black who are being shuttled into all sorts of other districts that I try to focus on and that we at the Chronicle were really kind of writing a lot about. Mm-hmm. It's like it's one thing about, you know, the members of Congress having to move or whatever. But it's another thing when you have thousands of people who are used to calling one member of Congress when a Social Security check doesn't come in or a VA mm-hmm. benefit has been held up. And now you're like shuffling that around all of a sudden on them for no particular reason. And so they really kind of like, you know, pulled this off on, you know, Jackson Lee and Green. And what we saw as we wrote about it, like the energy from the community on this, they really did care. You know, people really get fired up. And mm-hmm. w- by the time we get to that hearing in which you heard, you know, Congressman uh, Jackson or Congresswoman Jackson Lee and Congressman Green speaking uh, at that hearing, 85 percent of everybody who spoke at that hearing was from the third ward of Houston, Texas, uh, mm-hmm. which was being split off of the Sheila Jackson Lee district. And can remember, the third ward is where, you know, Texas Southern University is. That's where uh, 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 Barbara Jordan went to college mm-hmm. you know that's yeah. you know that area has historic significance so to kind of take that out of sheila jackson lee's district and take her house out of the district was just really pushing it to the absolute mm-hmm. limit you know later on it, you know if on the last day of the session or when mm-hmm. they approved the maps you know mm-hmm. joan huffman did classify it as a mistake it was accidentally mm-hmm. drawn Correct. i'm not so sure it was accidentally drawn it's like it's hard not to know where Sheila Jackson Lee lives, if you're anywhere near, you know, Houston, Texas. And yes, so especially when, knew. 
especially when if you look at the way that Michael McCall's district was drawn, it was drawn in a very specific way to ensure his house is in the district. If you if you zoom in on that part of it, um, they did. There were some contortions done to get his house into that district. I'm pointing to McCall because he is the chairman of the Republican delegation to Washington from Texas. Yes, right? and, so, he, and he was the mm-hmm. contact person for Joan yep. Huffman, she said. Right. She said it was his office that she was communicating with. So they ended up undoing that, uh, but it wasn't without uh, all of this aggravation and people really bringing attention to it. It was contentious throughout the debate. You know, yep. They talked about the uh, congressional maps and the Texas House maps, the Texas Senate maps. Uh, Representative Victoria Niave, I'll give you an example. She took on this guy from Fort Bend County. They were debating on the floor about some changes that had been made to some of the districts in Dallas County, where they have some heavily Latino areas or right around uh, uh, Irving. And this was, uh, I believe this was on the congressional map. But listen to Niave talk to Jatan. Uh, these, you know, she's from Dallas. He's from Houston area. And she's asking about the change he wants them to make in an area that he doesn't represent at all. Representative, what do you know about Dallas County Latinos? I assume very little. But you're up here defending a map and asking individuals to vote against it, yet you know nothing about my area, right? He admitted that he doesn't know anything about it. You hear him uh, say that. Uh, On these congressional maps, it is really um, a stretch both literally and figuratively, to come up with some of these districts. What they were talking about in Dallas County is a district that takes in Irving and part of Grand Prairie, which have a heavily Latino population. And it goes way out into East Texas, almost to Louisiana. It goes all the way out to Cherokee County, if you know where that is. Or you're talking almost all the way to Nacogdoches. It would take you three hours to drive out there from Irving to where this is I only know that because there is, uh, you know, the Horseshoe Casino in Shreveport, and I've made that I've made that trip a couple times. Anyway, <laughs> point is, I, well, I know how long it takes. Anyway, you look at what they're doing there, and uh, the chairman of the Mexican American Legislative Caucus, uh, Rafael Anchia, made the point that it's sort of like with these minority neighborhoods and minority uh, communities, it's like a fist goes into that area and just tosses those voters out. It tosses them out of having power, tosses them out of having any say in who represents them in Austin and in Washington. And I think that there are different arguments to be made in different parts of the state about the way that this was done. So in that instance, it's real obvious, right, what's happening. The, the, the folks who live in that part of Dallas County are having their ability to choose someone to represent them. They're having that be diminished in favor of the white people who live out in the country, right? That's that's easily what's happening. You can see it. it. That's easily what's happening. I think in other parts of the state, Jeremy, it's harder to make that argument. So, for example, in Fort Bend County, and no, let me back up. No one would say Irving or Grand Prairie that 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 those are su- suburbs, right? Those are sort of um, those are pretty urban. Now they're not, they're not right in Dallas, but they're pretty urban. In the suburbs, in Collin County, Denton County, Fort Bend County. And this part's anecdotal, but there is some data to back this up. Um, when I was talking to Republican campaigners last year, block walkers, people who are going through those neighborhoods, and these are the places where a thousand folks are moving to every day in Texas, right? Williamson County, Hayes County, the others I just mentioned. And when a block walker would go down the street to you know, make their pitch for whatever candidate, on the same street all over the place, 
The first house would be African-Americans. The second house would be Asian-Americans. The third house would be um, you know, white people. The, the next house would be something else. It, just these very integrated communities. And so it's harder to make the case in some of those places that the minorities are being uh, singled out, right, for, for trying to do the same thing that, that was done in Irving. Um, I think that part of what happened here in this redistricting, uh, in a large sense, is just protecting incumbents, Republicans and Democrats alike. I think that that made the arguments that people like Anchia and others had to make. It was not in their own personal self-interest to be against the map because the maps that they got were pretty okay for them, right, yeah. Indiv individually. Um, but it also changed the way that the arguments uh, sounded from the Republican side. So you heard Todd Hunter, the chairman of redistricting, say over and over again that these districts will perform from a partisan standpoint a lot like these do now, Right. And that he can say that because the Supreme Court has said that, and this was in the case uh, dealing with Wisconsin a few years ago, that the maps can't be challenged based on partisanship, right? The, the Supreme Court found that the maps can't be challenged that way because federal courts have no role in deciding whether they're too partisan. They said, leave that to the state legislatures around the country. But they can be challenged based on racial discrimination and whether it's intentional or not. If people in minority communities are not given a chance to elect people who will represent their interests, then they are in violation of the Voting Rights Act. So when people ask, when's the primary going to happen in Texas? Well, eh, we may be on track to have them sort of close to when we usually do in March, but maybe not. What if the three-judge uh, three panel down in uh, San Antonio says, wait, these are discriminatory? Or they say, wait, hang on, the, the process that was used here was truncated and contorted and weird. The point was made often during the redistricting debate, and you heard this a lot, Jeremy, that the pro that the process was bizarre. I was getting text messages from people who were listening to these hearings, texts that just say, WTF, what were they talking about? For example, the chairman of redistricting, Todd Hunter, told Democrats in a hearing that they would do invited expert testimony after the maps passed out of the committee. <laughs> yeah. And and people are saying, what? wait, what? And it's my understanding that one of the judges down, uh, down in San Antonio, who's a Republican appointee, by the way, is a real stickler for process questions and is going to wonder whether they were really doing this in a way that uh, offered the public enough chance to weigh in and there was enough transparency. I mean, a lot of times they would do, I remember in previous redistricting uh, uh, cycles, they would do field hearings around the state, show people these maps and go to uh, go to the communities where this is going to impact people and give them a chance to weigh in. None of that was done. They did the hearings here. And at one point, it seemed like the Senate was going to was going to rely on the fact that they had done hearings before the maps came out. Yeah. Well, they eventually they eventually did the did the hearings with the maps, but it was nowhere near the kind of transparent process that has happened in previous cycles. When, for the most part, in the 2011 uh, redistricting, those maps held up. For the most part, there was there were some legal challenges there, and there was some uh, redrawing that they had to ratify in 2013. Otherwise, those held up, and those were the Strauss and Dewhurst maps, which a lot of the old school Republicans, Jeremy, have said that's really what's to credit, or that should get the credit for the way that the elections played out in 2020. But those Republican leaders put maps in place that held up and weren't uh, weren't just ripped apart by the courts, and and you know had them put something else in place. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting to see, like, you know, the, the grand scheme things, uh, the, uh, 
you know, the Republicans are likely to get two additional congressional seats out of mm-hmm. these maps than they yeah. had previously. Right. Uh, you know, and that sounds like, you know, it, it's certainly and not a victory for Democrats in any you know, way you know, whatsoever. But look at what happened in the past redistrictings. You know, uh, people you know, might remember that after that 2000 census, you know, the, the, the Republicans were so aggressive at gerrymandering mm-hmm. that they were able to, you know, grow their Republicans coming out of Texas by eight Eight more Republicans ended up going to Congress, and then right. you know, that you know, 2010 census, they they squeezed all four of the additional seats that Texas got, turned all into Republican eventually. Essentially, mm-hmm. you know, so they really dominated the redistricting. But look what happened here; they only got two out, and it and these weren't massive redistricting, you know, redraws. You know, it's like they, you know, there's one district that. Could, I'm not convinced might not go democratic still in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And so you can see there's limitations on there because of how the state of Texas has grown and where the Democrats have shown up. You know, here comes Donald Trump, right? And look what he's done to those suburban counties. Like you talked mm-hmm. about earlier, Williamson, Hayes, Fort Bend, Collin. What's yeah. the commonality of all those counties? They've been running mm-hmm. towards the Democrats in much more aggressive ways, some extremely. If you look at places like Hayes County and Fort Bend, you know, four years ago, Governor Abbott, you know, or actually really eight years ago, Governor Abbott was winning the place. You know, the last time, four years ago, he got killed in them. You know, it's mm-hmm. like there's a reason for that. And that's where the redistricting ran into a problem. You couldn't use Williamson County and Hayes County to help balance off anything. They were now part of the problem, just like mm-hmm. Travis, just like Bear, just like Harris. You see, there's too many problems on the map now for Republicans to draw the Democrats, you know, into extreme positions. You know, it's like they've gotten as much as they can out of these maps, essentially. So if Democrats want a silver lining in this thing, the demographic just made it too hard for them to pull eight more Republican members of Congress out of the Mm -hmm. state of Texas. There's just not enough, you know, blood in the stone, right? Right. And, And that's why I say the winners on this are incumbents. The losers are the minorities. If you think about it this way, the uh, fact that, and I got some blowback about this on social media, but that's all social media is for anymore. Ninety-five um, percent of the growth of the state over the decade, the last decade, has been from minorities. So you would think they would get a bigger voice in Austin and in Washington. But guess what? Republicans found a way to draw the map such that they don't, and instead, the new seats that we are getting in Texas, the two new congressional seats. The Republicans will get those, right? So they're sort of reaping the reward from these folks who are not voting for them. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, it's the it's the old redistricting dance. So we'll we'll see what happens with this on the legal challenges. I think that um, that's there's there's if people think it's settled out, it's not. Just it's never watch settled. This, <laughs> watch this space. They're never done with redistricting. Uh, we did mention these retirements, and you know you have some of the real characters of the legislature are leaving. I was told. That and this is uh, who knows. I was told that we might see as many as twenty-five or thirty members of the Texas House once this is all over with. Will have said that they're retiring. I think we're at about seventeen right now, something like that. Now that this process is done, it will help them make the calculation about whether they are going to come back. It's not just what I said at the beginning of the show, which is that they're worn out. Some of them will take a little bit more time talk more with their families and that sort of stuff. Uh, But the other thing is, can they run in these districts? I think that if they are going to retire, Jeremy, it's not because of these districts. As I said, this is a really incumbent-friendly map for Republicans and Democrats. 
with some exceptions. There are some people who are having to make tough choices. Um, but Lyle Larson, San Antonio, it's been around a long time. He was first elected when we were just kids. You know, when you you were in college, right? I guess yeah. when he got elected to city council. Yeah, he's been a fixture in Bear County. I was reading about him in the San Antonio Light when I was a youngster. That tells you uh, how <laughs> <right>. long it's been. <laughs> well, it tells us what kind of dork you are that you were reading the newspaper. Yes, of course. Kid. Yeah. So, what what, and what so, else would a high school kid be doing? <laughs> right. Uh, so he was on uh, commissioner's court. I think there is some talk about whether he would run for a uh, county judge down in San Antonio. They are having a tectonic moment down there. Uh, Nelson Wolf, who has been the county judge for what's about 20 years. Yeah. yeah is that there, right? There's another been guy. In government who, longer than that. But, exactly. Mm-hmm. There's another um, guy who's been forever a part of San Antonio politics. Right. And so he's retiring. Uh, so there's some talk about maybe Larson doing that or maybe running for something statewide. Kel Seliger, uh, one of the real characters of the Texas Senate, somebody who's, as you've said uh, in the in the pre-show, well, he's uh, he's a character when a lot of these folks can seem the same, right? It's um, someone who's outspoken, uh, a maverick, if you will, has been at odds with Lieutenant Governor Patrick um, on a whole host of issues. Uh, and Seliger is someone who has been one of the top targets of what I call the right-wing enforcement groups in this state, Empower Texans, Texas Right to Life, the True Texas Project, which is really just more of the Empower Texan stuff. Um, they have been going after him for years. They've gone after him in Republican primaries. He's been successful. Uh, but Seliger, interesting, this was another one of those moments where people were sending me that text message, WTF, when they were uh, about to pass the Texas Senate map in the Senate, Seliger got up and gave a quick speech. He said that he was um, concerned about the way his district was being, or the district he represents, was being shifted to the South. And he said that the specific reason that it was being done was because someone who used to be a board member at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is another arm of all this Empower Texan stuff, it's all the same donors and same people. Um, one of those board members, a former board member, was going to run for his seat, and the district was being drawn specifically for that person. He didn't name the person. It turns out that it's Kevin Sparks. We have reported at quorumreport.com about the influence of Lieutenant Governor Patrick with former President Trump, and Patrick doesn't like Seliger. What happened right around that time? Seliger went public with that comment, and then Donald Trump endorses this guy, Kevin Sparks from Midland, for a state Senate seat. Have you ever seen a former president get involved in legislative races that way? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> no, right. So, so that's that's all bizarre. Uh, and then, of course, we have uh, Dan Huberty, the um, one of the real characters, but also uh, a, a serious legislator and someone who Democrats would say, you know, he's a Republican. Democrats would say he's somebody who has done incredible work on the public education front in the state. Yeah, exactly. You're talking about a guy who, like, you know, you know just knows the ins and outs of school finance probably better than anybody around the Capitol. Sure. And mm-hmm. it's just to lose that. And and look at what we're losing on the Senate side. It, you know, Jane Nelson announced mm-hmm. early she was leaving. Right. Now you get Kel mm-hmm. Seliger. You have the two most senior Republicans. So it's, a, it's you know, we're, we're losing Republicans who were in the Texas Senate before Dan Patrick arrived. You know, and, and I'm yes. interested to see what that dynamic is. You know, as more and more of the people who have you know, run as Republicans ran to be in a Dan Patrick's house, in a Dan Patrick chamber versus not, mm-hmm. you know, that'll be an interesting dynamic as we move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's more and more Dan Patrick's Senate. Um, vaccines. This is what gets everybody worked up. One thing that did not pass 
in the legislative session was Governor Abbott's ban on employers being able to put their own vaccine mandates in place. And we talked about this a little bit uh, last week on the show. And as we were talking, I think every business group in the state, Jeremy, was coming out against this thing. Texans for Lawsuit Reform, Texas Association of Business, uh, Texas Realtors, Manufacturers, Texas Medical Association. Um, If people do business in Texas, they were basically against this. And the argument went something like this. And we we heard from uh, Mark Davis, uh, who's the uh, one of the conservative talk show hosts in North Texas who said he didn't like what Abbott was doing when I thought he might. There's a lot of people in the conservative base who like this. Um, Don Huffines, who's running against Greg Abbott, uh, of course, for the GOP nomination, he basically claimed credit for for Abbott trying to do this. Uh, Abbott put a, 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 what was it, an executive order in place, but then he asked the legislature to do something about it as well. I don't know that that executive order is going to hold up, Jeremy. I mean, who's even going to enforce that? That, you know, small businesses all over the place, if they want to have a vaccine mandate for their employees, who, I mean, who's going to go around checking that? Um, You you have uh, Abbott on Fox Business Channel saying that what President Biden is doing by trying to have businesses that are, uh, what, over 100 employees that they have to put a vaccine mandate in place. uh, Abbott says this is completely unacceptable. And he's, he's asking the question in a really menacing tone. Where is all of this going to go? Where does this end? Uh, We're talking about a federal mandate for a shot. Uh, As you know, there's waning effectiveness of these shots. Are are people going to be required by the federal government to take a shot every single year for the rest of their lives? Americans need to come to grips with the unconstitutional overreach by the Biden administration. A shot every single year, Jeremy. Imagine that. The, The jokes write themselves. Abbott was also on Breitbart television, which I guess is a thing. And they were uh, doing an interview with Abbott at Daryl K. It looked like Daryl K. Royal Stadium here yeah. in Austin at the, at the UT Stadium. Uh, he was asked about the legal back and forth, uh, that there could be a showdown between Texas and the Biden administration over this idea of a vaccine mandate. The, the main goal uh, and, and one of the catalysts behind my action uh, was to ensure that people would not be losing their jobs. And let me explain all of this, but let me first go back and answer the question that you asked, and that is, it's the legal wrangling. Let me be very clear about this. Neither the President of the United States nor the federal government have any legal authority, any constitutional authority, to issue their vaccine mandate. And so they're clearly acting illegally, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to act, because I wanted to set the counterbalance against the Biden administration to say that no one can be compelled to take a vaccine. And so this is headed toward a legal showdown. And I'm very confident it's a legal showdown that we will win because throughout the history of the United States of America, it has been governors and states that have been in charge of the health and safety of the people who are residents of those states, not the federal government. Actually, in Texas, um, for many, many years, for decades, it has been the case that in emergencies, the county judges are the ones who react first uh, by state law. They're in charge of the uh, emergency response. Of course, that has all been turned on its head during this pandemic with Governor Abbott grabbing more and more power. But you wanted to say something about it, Jeremy? Yeah. Uh, and, and let's 
you know, not forget that, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court has weighed in on this topic before in yep. history. And it's like there's a lot of case law of the Supreme Court saying it is okay to force vaccinations on your community. It was, you know, a lot of it goes back to when we were requiring smallpox and polio vaccinations and things like that to oh, prevent yeah. infectious disease from getting out of control. That's where they said, yeah, your personal liberty can be, you know, restrained here because of the fact there's a greater good in the public health. And so the courts, including the Supreme Court, have plenty of case law that says it's actually okay to require vaccinations for certain illnesses. Yeah. We've done that for a hundred and something years. The real world consequences of all this are becoming apparent in Potter County, for example, which we covered earlier uh, in the pandemic. I think even going back to last year that they had a big spike in cases and COVID that was before there was a vaccine um, out in Amarillo, the county judge, Nancy Tanner, says they basically hit a wall when it comes to vaccines. They were doing pretty well uh, with getting people vaccinated uh, because, of course, they had uh, gone through the fire of having a horrible outbreak there, just like they did in El Paso and in some other places. I think down in the valley as well, they had big problems uh, with, with these big outbreaks. Uh, but Tanner says now people have just stopped getting the vaccine. They may have maxed out on the number of people who are actually willing to get the shot. We literally led the country in, in the getting the vaccine rolled out. We did so good. And then all of a sudden, everyone just had a screeching halt and no one wants to get the vaccine now. I can't put my finger on it. I do not know what, what it is. Um, we have a lot of farmers and ranchers up here that that I guess don't make it to town and just figure that they don't they're not going to get it so they're not getting the shot. Tanner was on WFAA in Dallas Fort Worth and she was doing a Zoom interview so you could hear her computer there Jeremy but I, I my point with this is that it, there is a consequence to people like Governor Abbott or Ron DeSantis who I think he DeSantis has now called a special session in Florida oh, yeah. over some of this stuff. Yeah, this, this, and, and, this is almost becoming like a TV show of some sort of the, you know, the yeah. Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis show where DeSantis first talks tough about you know, vaccine mm -hmm. mandates and Abbott responds with his governor, his, uh, his order issue, you know, that he issued mm -hmm. to stop vaccine mandates. Well, now, you know, DeSantis is coming back to try to trump him. Now he's calling a special session so they will do a vaccine mandate when Texas did not. And so it's just back and forth between these two at this point. Right. Absolutely. Um, that law that was proposed, the, the bill, did not pass in the special session. Um, and what was the enforcement mechanism that was going to be put into place? Well, it was Brian Hughes carrying the bill uh, in state affairs uh, in that committee in the Texas Senate. And if you had to guess, Jeremy, given Senator Hughes and his, his other history with some of these pieces of legislation with the abortion bill, SB8, that people are outraged about across the country, with the social media uh, uh, crackdown uh, that, that he pushed, with other pieces of legislation. What do you think his remedy was for this? What would you guess? Uh, based if on what did, he's been doing, it's like throw it all into the courts, I, be, I bet, right? Yes. Take it to the court, baby. Open the courthouse doors. Throw them open wide and let everybody sue everybody over this. Now, we had Texans for lawsuit reform. We had every other business group come out and say it is a horrible idea. For, and these are major – let me underscore this. TLR is one of the most prolific contributors to Republican politicians in the state. 
tens of millions of dollars over the decades. Um, in the last election cycle in 2020, when $11 million suddenly showed up on the Republicans' reports who were running for the Texas House, every dollar of it came from, te- from you know Texans for lawsuit reform, canceling out the money that Democrats had been spending and announcing that they were spending on, you know, it got to the point where I was thinking that every time Democrats would announce how much they were putting into Texas House races, they're just taking notes at TLR so they would know exactly how much to counter with. You have to see it on the reports. They don't announce it. That's the difference. Democrats announce it. We're, we're you know, we're, we're giving all this money or that we're putting all this money into Texas House races. The Republicans just do it. They're at war with their own contributors, Jeremy, over this issue. Business folks. Uh, Republican politicians privately were telling me there is no way we are going to tell private business what to do when it comes to their own policies on vaccines. If we do, we're not really Republicans anymore. That, that's how far they were going with their comments. Yeah, and you end up with this situation where, like, you know, like, you know, businesses who are worried about like you know people getting COVID and mm-hmm. resulting in like work stoppages and stuff like that. It's like it's like they, they have a concern. You can see why like a guy who runs a factory or you know any sort of facility with lots of people in it would be concerned about you know half the workforce coming down with COVID and not being able to come to work. Right, once that gets in you know, to the building, how do you get it out of there? And the last thing you want as a business owner, I would suspect, is to have COVID run rampant through, you know, your your facility, whether it be a Tesla, you know, manufacturer, or maybe down at the Toyota plant down in San Antonio. It's like, what kind of damage would that cause to those industries if all of a sudden they had to shut down because of COVID while everybody else is trying to up things, right? Mm-hmm. And you can see where, like, the private business part of it would be very much strong in everybody's mind, even the Republican Party, even against Brian Hughes, even against Dan Patrick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not moving. It's not happening. All right, one last thing here. I am almost out of show. But I do have one last thing for you. Do you remember Lieutenant Governor Patrick saying that he would give a million dollars in a reward for evidence of voter fraud? Now, this seemed to play sort of strangely. Um, I think just logically, the fact that he would have to offer a million dollars to try to find any voter fraud would only make the Democrats point that it's very rare, right, that it doesn't happen, that it does happen. But, it, but it's not widespread. Um, it certainly doesn't justify all these new elections laws, right? He was saying a million dollars he would pay uh, out of his campaign account, and it would be $25,000 per incident is, uh, was my understanding. Now, when he was asked questions about it, both he and his campaign consultant, Alan Blakemore, called question, any question about it stupid, right? That, I'm, I'm not even paraphrasing. That's what the, that was the word, stupid. They said, don't ask stupid questions. Um, when the Dallas Morning News asked questions about this, I think Blakemore said something along the lines of you have exhausted or you're close to exhausting your uh, quota for stupid questions this year. That was pretty close to the quote. CBS Austin reporter Christian Flores asked Patrick about it back in April during a news conference. And I think you were standing right there when this happened. I was. Remember this? Uh, let me take – you can relive the magic right now. Listen. <laughs> 
Back on the topic of election yeah. security, if all three cases in Pennsylvania do lead to convictions, do you plan on giving the lieutenant governor his award money? He, he has been seeking you know, out. You know, just go, you know, don't ask me a stupid question. I didn't come here to take stupid questions from the media. It's ridiculous. Two okay? or three have it's admitted ridiculous. to. I just answered your question. Two or three have admitted to I voter fraud your there. Question, okay? I read now from the Dallas Morning News. Nearly a year after offering up a hefty bounty for evidence of voter fraud in the wake of Donald Trump's loss, Lieutenant Governor Patrick has handed out his first reward, but instead of going to an informant who smoked out fraud by Democrats, Patrick's five-figure payout, 25K, uh, went to a progressive poll worker, a liberal poll worker, in Pennsylvania whose tip led to a single conviction of illegal voting by a registered Republican. This unexpected outcome reveals the political dangers of cash bounties, writes um, Lauren McGahey <laughs> in the morning news. Uh, says, uh, with strings attached and more cases of alleged GOP voting fraud still in Pennsylvania courts, Patrick may be asked to shell out even more cash to his opponents, Jeremy, which I'm sure that he will think is stupid. That's enough show, don't you think? Yeah, I think we've hit I was, our match. I was close to done. Now I'm really done. If you enjoy the show, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Give us the best rating that you can and give us a nice review. We appreciate it. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com to keep up to date on everything that's happening in Texas politics before we talk to you again right here next week. Mm-hmm.